Season 6, Episode 5, sponsored by Pfizer Canada. It's Jason Lee, and I'm joined by Brianne Hurdle again. And this is our last episode of this season on my allergy podcast. And in this episode, I'm going to put Brianne in the driver's seat, and she's going to ask me kind of all the burning questions uh, that we've gathered from this season. Go ahead, Brianne. Well, thank you, Jason. I appreciate I appreciate that. The stress is on. Um, <laughs> well, first off, I just I was thinking about like all of our conversations over the last few weeks with these podcasts, and it's just it one seems to lead to another. And the information you've given is just so fascinating, especially for the general public that just doesn't really have uh, like doesn't understand if you don't work in the medical field. I mean, there's only so much that people can really kind of wrap their heads around. But but I think in today's day and age, especially after a pandemic like COVID, and we've all lived through something that's morbidly stressful, that's impacted our mental health greatly. Um, I think a, one burning question would be about how our mental health and stress can lead to immune damage or the secondary inflammation we talked about last time, along with um, things like allergies, like asthma or eczema or any of this are, you know, basically all of the the um the way that the immune system is affected yeah it's a very very good and interesting question and you know it's one that i probably don't know uh, all the answers for and nobody really knows all the answers for um but you know the literature in my field has really taken with giant leaps forward in the last 10 years and mm -hmm. and when i talk to my psychiatry colleagues their literature has really advanced, uh, you know, quite a bit. So some of the paradigms or thoughts or conceptual frameworks that we use to think of things like, for example, in depression being a neurotransmitter uh, the deficiency or not enough, uh, all of this is kind of changing a little bit as well. So the question becomes, you know, what leads to, you know, not enough production of neurotransmitters? And, you know, what, is there some process that you know, regulates this process that's not just working in an efficient way or in an aberrant way. And so what we find out is a lot of the research from uh, my field and in the neuropsychiatric literature have actually converged. So, you know, we know that uh, a lot of the uh, innate lymphoid cells that we addressed last time, they're involved in regulation of the immune system. And this neuroinflammatory model for a lot of mental illness now is actually taking root. So there are some genetic predispositions, some genetic polymorphisms, or what we call single nucleotide polymorphisms that lead to or predispose people to certain mental illness. And these single nucleotide polymorphisms, uh, some of them are actually shared with things like asthma and other conditions that I treat that are also found in some of the neuropsychiatric literature. So, so it seems like there's some kind of, you know, method to the madness, as Hamlet would say. Um, you know, there's some kind of connection to this. And, you know, I, I, it's a very, very exciting time in the medical field, because I think within my lifetime, we're going to have a completely different framework for understanding uh, both mental illness and, you know, physical ailments that I treat. And it, it's going to be much more closer to the truth of what's actually going on uh, than before. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the, you know, many frustrating things that patients have is sometimes, you know, you, you go to the doctor and a specialist. And uh, we'll say, I, I don't know. I don't know what the cause of this is, right? And mm -hmm. it, as, as a patient, it's very frustrating to hear. Um, but, you know, that's kind of my approach when I don't really have a full grasp of things. Uh, you know, better than making up an answer, which, you know, which is, which is sometimes, you know, not, not the right thing to do. But, 
you know, I guess some people like having some kind of answer. Um, so, yeah, the stress is definitely a factor in many things. Um, and we have a tendency with very sort of mechanical view of the body of underestimating the role of stress. But now mm -hmm. we know, um, you know, different stress sort of neural pathways can influence our immune cells. Uh, so mm -hmm. for example, we have things like, you know, neurokinin A, uh, substance P, these are uh, released in terms of, in times of stress. And when you look mm -hmm. at animals, they're much more affected by stress. So for mm -hmm. example, you know, uh, my, my, my daughter bought a hamster during the pandemic, speaking of the pandemic, and yes. uh, it died from stress the first uh, couple of days, because when they're stressed, their gut immune system uh, actually shuts off and the gut yes. bacteria actually start uh, invading their body and, and they actually die some, from sepsis, um, you know, and uh -huh. if you look, yeah, even primates, uh, Brie, like, you know, they will die from uh, a severe catastrophic heart attack if they're stressed out. And, you know, why do these things occur? Uh, why are infections more prone when you're sick and stressed out? And mm -hmm. we look at things like, you know, is it physiological stress? Is it, is it mental stress? The, the body can't really tell what's going on. Your adrenal glands are affected. Mm -hmm. The things produced by the adrenal glands, including corticosteroids, you know, really do affect mm -hmm. all aspects of your immunity. So integrating mm -hmm. all this together, it's such a complicated calculus. And, you know, I measuring know. these things is even harder to do. So, you know, sometimes when we're doing a clinical trial for a new medication, we measure some of these things called like cytokines, for example, uh, we measure some neuropeptides. Uh, these are very mm -hmm. hard to do. You can't do this in a regular lab setting. And most academic centers, um, at least in Canada, you know, really don't have the facilities to run a lot of these, uh, you know, fancy or sophisticated tests. And, and mm -hmm. tests also, right, it gets even worse because you have to time when you do the blood draw and when the patient's getting stressed. So it's even harder to do than like a functional MRI or a PET scan study where you can see different parts of the brain lighting up because now you've got to, you know, have the brain light up and you've got to be able to measure it in the peripheral blood, uh, which is, you know, very, mm -hmm. very difficult task. You know, I wonder if I'll ever get to, you know, Star Trek like uh, technology where we can know everything, but you know, <laughs> right now, yeah. <laughs> no, definitely not. Well, I don't know, like you said the last time, the chicken and the egg, right? But there's got to be some sort of, I uh, like working in mental health myself, like a link with the stress. Like if you look at the mammalian brain, which is the limbic brain, right? That's the prehistoric part of our brain. And our bodies don't know how to decipher between a tiger chasing you or you missing the bus and it releases the same hormones. And our bodies aren't meant to stay in that state of stress all the time. Those hormones are supposed to be temporary, not consistent. So yeah, absolutely. You know, the flight, yeah. uh, what is the flight fight? Fawn. Yeah. I can't remember the freeze. other one. Yeah, yeah, that's four, right. Yeah, so the, it's the fight flight, freeze and fawn response. And that's our amygdala on fire. And actually, if you experience lots of trauma, you've got parts of the limbic brain as well as the prefrontal cortex that are damaged, right? So the hippocampus is shrunk in size, the amygdala is grown in size, and the prefrontal cortex is shrunk in size. And this is why people who have PTSD and complex trauma are in a hypervigilant state all the time. Those hormones are triggered all the time and constantly going. And I wonder, again, which is possibly maybe I'm not a doctor, but leading to the secondary inflammation that we yeah, were talking I, about last. I think it's definitely a, a big uh, comorbidity and compounding variable. And the yeah. links between the two, like, I think we're just trying to 
uh, we're like pretty much at the stone age still, but we're kind of getting on the cusp <laughs> of understanding this stuff. And, yeah. uh, you know, we talked about the, um, the siloed approach to medicine. Like you don't have like someone like me working at uh, a psychiatric hospital trying to figure stuff out like this. Right. And, and, no. you, don't, and you don't have a cardiologist, you know, even a cardiologist and a lung specialist, a respirologist, they don't work like hand in hand all the time either. Right. So, so these no. this kind of siloed approaches and certainly dermatologists are never really in the ICU unless something needs to be <laughs> biopsied. So it's really hard to integrate the different specialties and, and, and there's so much specialized knowledge and subspecialized <laughs> knowledge that one human being really cannot know everything about every yep. field you know it, yep. it really it really is hard so um yeah it's uh it's kind of interesting so i don't know if that answers in a roundabout way, way what you asked me but you know i really didn't answer the question because I, I really don't know well it's <laughs> though well that's just it but you just like the stress and the mental health and then you look at like i mean our world and it's constantly changing if you look at sociologic Oh, mm -hmm. conditioning. And I mean, it's changing all the time. I mean, we're always oh, moving forward in a different direction. And so, well, how does that impact our physical body, our physiology, our biology, everything, right? But yeah. what about um, another, I think, burning question would be, do viruses cause immune damage permanently then cause allergies or our immune systems to react differently? Like if you were to get any sort of virus and what viruses would those be? Do you okay. know? So I'm going to answer this question, but I'm going to add one point to our previous discussion. In okay. every condition that I treat, um, yeah. asthma, allergies, eczema, every single one, I can say all mental health conditions are increased, like there's more of an association. And right. in every single one of these, some of the maladaptive behaviors like substance abuse, uh, smoking, obesity, all of these are increased as well. So okay. again, this you know, regulation may affect multiple aspects of your health, including the, you know, the true WHO definition of health, which is physical and mental health and emotional, spiritual. Health. I think all of these are mm -hmm. uh, very intertwined. And uh, now I can address your second question. Okay. Okay. So the second question is, you know, why um do viruses or can viruses rev up different parts of your immune system this yeah. is absolutely true and we've known this for uh, a long time right. when when we look at respiratory viruses for example when a virus causes like a devastating illness you know where the patient ends up in hospital mm -hmm. or in the icu or you know is close to death and makes it back sometimes when the first part of the immune system um, is overwhelmed, uh, the type one inflammation, type two inflammation is therefore activated and overly activated. Right. So some, in some cases, this is actually what causes the patient to die because they have too much inflammation from their own body. It's like your body right. has decided to use a nuclear weapon to deal with like a local insurgency or, or protest or something. I don't know. That's the analogy I can come up with at the, at this point, but you know, an overactive, or over aggressive immune response is sometimes bad. And sometimes even when the patient gets better, the patient leaves the hospital, they're kind of on their own. They continue to deal with the effects of too much activation of this type two inflammation. So a lot of patients with uh, COVID, for example, uh, mm -hmm. have asthma now, and you know they have never had asthma before, but now they have asthma and they're confused as to why they're 
constantly short of breath, uh, you know, wheezing, and they can't run as well, or they feel fatigued after minimal exertion. Uh, a lot of people feel fatigued, uh, and they describe this mental fog just because they, uh, you know, their body is kind of constantly kind of on and activated, trying to, you know, have some kind of inflammation going on. And if you check the blood inflammatory markers of these patients, uh, many of them will remain elevated. So, we've, yeah, we've known this for a while with many viruses. Uh, but it's just, I think it's because COVID has infected and affected so many people, it's more, um, you know, present in the minds of a lot of patients. Like, you know, I've seen patients uh, for, you know, my entire career dealing with something like this. They were perfectly fine. They get an infection and then they start dealing with asthma and all sorts of, you know, problems like this, or they deal with an allergy, things like this. Mm-hmm. And this would be the second inflammation. That's right. Yeah, so many viruses, um, you know, have our bodies in a, you know, constant state of inflammation, especially viruses you can't clear fully too. So, you know, for example, before when we had um, any, you know, cure for hepatitis C, for example, it would kind of lay dormant and, you know, continue to cause inflammation. Now, thankfully, that one was limited mainly to the liver, but in some patients, you can have, you know, extra hepatic uh, uh, complication, which means outside of the liver. Um, we used to think, you know, infections like uh, herpes, uh, you know, varicella zoster or uh, HSV, these sort of, you know, what we thought as minor infections, uh, our body would deal with it. But, you know, we always knew they can kind of reactivate and come back to shingles later on in life. So the, the previous thought is that, um, you know, you, you deal with the virus, you're back, your body kinds of wins and keeps it up bay. And it's, you know, the virus is quote unquote mm-hmm. dormant. You know, what we now know, which is really interesting, is that that's not the case at all. Your body has one, oh. but it's constantly at war with this virus. So, for example, uh, when we look at the you know virus that causes shingles, um, a zoster, it is actually lying in our nerve roots. And it's not just, you know, sleeping. It's constantly engaged in a back and forth battle with our body's immune system. And when we feel tired, when our body's immune system kind of gets declined, boom, now you've got the shingles coming up because the shingles virus is actually winning against your immune system. So you get the zoster outbreak. And, uh, you know, these concepts, um, the dogmatic kind of approaches to medicine uh, constantly change. So there's a new, you know, framework and new uh, thinking. So the dogma is disrupted uh, as we find out more. So um, many viruses, even something as simple as, uh, you know, a rhinovirus that causes common cold. Um, it turns out in some people, if you have that genetic predisposition, you have those genes or you have those, you know, what we call uh, polymorphic genes or single nucleotide polymorphisms, or if you have happen to have some of your, you know, genes turned on more by the epigenetic factors, you're more likely to activate this sort of overreactive immune system and uh, that affects your future encounter with other infections where you're much more likely to have, um, uh, you know, a worse outcome or a more uh, non-productive or non-helpful immune response to viruses. So, you know, I'll give you the perfect example. I deal with a lot of asthma patients or patients with sinus problems or nasal polyps. Uh, once they have this aberrant immune regulation, the once the regulation is gone, you... Mm-hmm 
always react with a nuclear weapon against a small threat. So you end up getting much more sicker and you feel sicker by your own immune system. It does more damage than, than good. Interesting. I was just also thinking, you know, when we go back to stress for a second, like what about pregnancy? What if, if somebody had a very stressful pregnancy, does this play a role in the fetus and the infant and the development and how they may react in their immune system and how it's wired um, at birth? Absolutely. So, you know, um, so I deal with a lot of patients who get pregnant in the context of the conditions that I treat. And, you know, one of the common things that comes up is, you know, for allergies, you know, uh, it, it often leads into asthma. And a lot of my patients have, as a result, asthma. And the question is, you know, um, do, should I take my asthma medications? Um, and, or should I just, you know, not take any medication because it's not safe for the baby? So, you know, um, I'm answering your question in a roundabout way, but it, it illustrates a few important concepts here. Um, when there is uh, inflammation that's unchecked in your body, uh, it is much more uh, detrimental for the fetus than the mother uh, in most cases. So, you know, when the example of asthma, it's easier to kind of understand um, that, you know, you're breathing. If you're hearing wheezing, if you're having shortness of breath, that means your body is not getting enough oxygen. And you've got to remember that oxygen has to go through your body, supply all your organs, and then there's going to be enough, yeah, enough left over to transfer again across the placenta. So people underestimate um, how the inflammation in the lungs can affect the developing uh, fetus um, because of you know the just a simple gas transfer uh, you know dynamics here, but the baby. Uh, does get trickling of the some of the stress hormones, so stuff produced by your adrenals, uh, stuff produced by uh, other components of the uh, nervous system, and the baby will now develop, especially in first and second trimester, in an environment where there's the hormone milieu is is a bit off, and the cytokine, the immune signal milieu, is a bit off. So, you know, uh, in a lot of animal models of, uh, of stress uh, during pregnancy, the default position is actually the animal has a stillbirth or, or aborts the baby somehow. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and in, in humans, you know, we have all sorts of technologies and things to keep a lot of pregnancies, uh, you know, viable, even in the setting of stress. But any infection um, and allergies is really kind of like a mini infection as the, as far as your body sees it. All of these things and, and are compounded by stress and all of these things definitely affect the uh, in utero development of, of a baby. So, you know, it's that uh, old motherhood saying, you know, get your husband to rub your or feed when you're pregnant or something like that, right? You want, yeah. you want that stress relief if you can, yeah. Well, the immune system is already, um, isn't it suppressed based on the pregnancy because it's trying not to kill the fetus. So it's seen as a foreign object or a foreign life in your body or organism in your body. Yeah. So isn't it your, your immune system suppressed anyway? So it would yeah. be interesting. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, aspects of the immune system that are tweaked or turned off. Uh, so that you don't reject the, uh, the the fetus, which has you know 50% different uh, genetic material from you to start off with, um, and you know even even some of the uh, blood markers and other proteins that float in the uh, fetus's uh, uh, body, you know invariably some stuff kind of you know although there's a type error, some stuff actually does trickle through, and your body has to learn not to attack this with antibodies. 
you know, the perfect example, which everyone knows is the, you know, the uh, rhesus factor in, in, uh, in, in babies, right? If that, uh, you know, if the, the antibodies do transfer, uh, the IgG antibodies, and that can be very detrimental. Um, in, in some ways, the transfer of the, uh, these antibodies and things like this are meant to protect the baby from the same pathogens that the mother has had. So for example, you know, if you were pregnant, you had the COVID vaccine or other vaccines, um, those antibodies that you've now formed, some of them will transfer to the baby. A baby's immune system actually doesn't produce that many of its own antibodies for the first year of life and in infancy. So it's actually relying on some of the passive antibodies it received while it was inside and some, you know, breast uh, IgA antibody uh, through breast milk. So um, all of these things are, um, you know, intertwined with the, the mother's health. Yeah, well, it's interesting because my sister had recently had a baby a couple months ago and they, they encouraged her to get the pertussis vaccine while she was pregnant. And I thought, well, that's new um, because she cared, but the, the antibodies are carried um, and she has more protection um, based on the fact that there was higher rates of pertussis going up and they were wanting to protect the baby. So, yeah. Very interesting. So, yeah, a lot of these cases, uh, you know, of uh, previously uh, almost or nearly eradicated uh, infectious disease, and you know, we us uh, they're kind of making a comeback, and we needing to, yeah. or we the royal we needing some kind of protection, and um, a lot of the vaccines that were um, you know previously uh, not given in pregnancy are now given, especially the killed vaccines. So there's a distinction mm -hmm. here. Inactivated uh, vaccines or totally killed vaccines versus yeah. you know, uh, wow. live attenuated strains, which is like the dummy versions of the virus. So we generally not don't give live um, like vaccines mm -hmm. in pregnancy or in people with you know weakened immune systems. Uh, but all the killed vaccines are generally thought to be fairly safe, and uh, uh, well, we can safely administer in people with either no immune systems or who are pregnant. So pertussis, isn't that um, uh, like, I'm, uh, doesn't it damage your lungs? Something for the cilia in your lungs, isn't it? Um, yeah. Isn't it damaged to, if you were to um, contract pertussis? That's right. And yeah. does this cause the inflammation? Yeah, absolutely. So any any um, bacteria, virus, or fungi that are patholog uh, pathologic can damage the lining of the epithelium. And depending on how your particular body decides to deal with it or doesn't deal with it, you know, either you recover completely with no sequelae, you recover with, you know, damage to the lungs and people can get damaged to the lungs all the time. We call this uh, bronchiectasis where uh, the airways actually get damaged uh, permanently and often hard to heal. Um, or you end up with having an abnormally strong immune response to future infections or an abnormally dysregulated response, I should say. Right. And as you're saying with COVID now, like, is there any sort of, we don't, I mean, it's still fairly new, but people talk about COVID lung or um, if you've had COVID pneumonia, do, do you, is there permanent lung damage there and stress and like you were saying, asthma is definitely. Yeah. So that's the abnormal immune response that I talked about. Uh, some people will have permanent uh, scarring. So the bronchiectasis, the damage in the airways that I spoke about. Other people have a collapse of different parts of the lung as part of a complication. And, you know, once a part of the lung, um, you know, completely collapses and if the alveoli where the gas exchange has, has died, it, it's basically permanently gone. So you lose some lung function and functional capacity of the lung. Um, so, you know, it remains to be seen if this will progress at a faster rate 
everyone understands that if you smoke, your lung function declines faster than the average person. An asthmatic, uh, you know, declines faster too, but not as much as a smoker. So it remains to be seen if a COVID person uh, will decline faster or will, they, or will they, you know, be on the track as asthma. Right. No, that makes sense. And I think another burning question would be, and I'm sure we, we talked about this previously, that you get a lot of patients coming in and that the whole controversy is to mRNA vaccines and if they're damaging and can they hurt the immune system and can this cause secondary inflammation or can you actually, uh, can the body respond with allergies due to vaccines? So yeah, it's a very good <laughs> question. And, you know, I think, um, you know, a, a lot of our public health and uh, politicians have done a very poor job um, translating the science to to the public, um, you know, and, and, and it's really, you know, not really, I don't really put anyone to blame, uh, you know, doctors in public health, they're not uh, trained as public speakers are designed to, you know, their, their training is to do a job to limit and, uh, edu- you know, the spread of disease. Um, this is the first time in history we've ever had a vaccine developed using mRNA uh, technology, like, or I should say approved using mRNA technology. And this is quite a, you know, technological feat because mRNA is inherently unstable as well. So it's very hard to stabilize it and to get it into your body, you know, without your body completely just destroying it in the beginning, but getting it into the cells is, is, is it was really tricky to figure out. So once they figured that out, um, they were able to, you know, basically commandeer our own cells machinery to produce antibodies to uh, the antigens that the mRNA was instructing it to produce. So it's kind of a very interesting um, technology it's a good proof of concept vaccine. But because of this, there were so many unknowns, uh, including uh, amongst the public. So a lot of the comments that I get on my TikTok is, you know, why did you still get COVID if you had three three jabs? And and it's because we know that, you know, one, the, the virus mutates, the COVID-19 virus mutates uh, quite a bit. It's a very unstable single-stranded RNA. And two, we don't know the long-term characteristics of an mRNA vaccine. So we didn't uh, know that the immunity would wane uh, very quickly after the first dose. So original trials were designed with two doses, but we didn't know how long that immunity would last for either. So now then it changed, you know, everyone needing maybe three vaccines. And now that the virus has changed so much, we probably need a completely different mRNA vaccine for the new variants because the current one is not that robust. So all of these... um, parameters are unique to this vaccine. Um, the question or that you alluded to before or asked before was, can this mRNA change your DNA or can it get incorporated into your genome? That's what I, yeah, which, yeah. no, I don't think. So. <laughs> yeah, and you're right. Um, I got asked this question at least five times a day at the um, beginning of the pandemic before the you know vaccines were even approved by Health Canada or the FDA. Um, and you know, our bodies and most, you know, complicated organisms, we don't have the ability to change RNA into DNA. Uh, we, we just don't, we don't no. have that enzyme. So, you know, some simple, very simple organisms and viruses have this enzyme. It's called reverse transcriptase. We don't have that. Okay. So uh, it's, it's really impossible to go from RNA to DNA. And, uh, you know, even, even if, even if that were possible, so first of all, it's absolutely not possible in, in human beings, we don't have reverse transcriptase. Uh, but even if that were possible, our genome is humongous. So 
Mm-hmm. Viruses, other viruses that infect us actually do incorporate into our DNA sometimes. But because our genome is mm-hmm. so crazy, the chance of it hitting something that's actually important is, mm-hmm. like, is null. Because most of our DNA is actually filler DNA and it doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't serve a, a purpose. Right, right. And I know there's still so much controversy. I mean, I I sort of work in the holistic health world and I get in battles with people all the time because I'm more on the Western Western side of medicine. And, um, you know, I feel like there's this beautiful balance that one can complement the other. But then you get people that are like, no, you're shedding, you know, your vaccine and the virus on me and all this crap out there. And I'm just curious to know, um, or I think a lot of people think that, uh, because of the, uh, the well fillers or the the preservatives that are in vaccines that can cause major allergies in people. Have you seen this as an allergy specialist or an immune specialist? Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it, it's not a very common occurrence. This does happen. It's very, very rare. Okay. But mm-hmm. for the mRNA vaccines, like, you know, you got the Moderna and the, and the Pfizer one, um, you know, they all have their unique trade names like comedy, but the, um, a rate of anaphylaxis is pretty low. We're talking about one in two and a half million and one in five million. Okay, so it's, first of all, it's extremely low. When you have a vaccination program that has to vaccinate billions of people, though, you will definitely hear stories of people having had reactions. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, allergists like myself, we try to figure out what was the, you know, the component in this vaccine uh, outside the vaccine, you know, mRNA itself that was causing these reactions. And we don't have like a clear cut answer on why some people had an allergic reaction. So amongst the you know patients that I saw who had a bona fide, you know, true anaphylactic reaction, we could still never figure out what it was that they reacted to. And here's the really interesting thing: all of these patients, almost all of them, not almost, not all, but almost all, the vast majority, are able to get the second vaccine, second dose no modification without having a reaction. So we don't even know what, what, what it was in the first one. People had uh, theories, okay, of, of the different preservative components that people were reacting to. Right. Some allergists were even testing uh, with these components. Uh, but, you know, it, this theory didn't really make sense either because some of these chemicals are found in like so many other products. Why would the patient never have reacted before? So it, it, was, it was really a bit of a mystery and we're still actively debating amongst our, uh, you know, community of uh, allergists, uh, you know, what, what, what is actually causing this, you know, and we may, we may never know because, uh, you know, the, the top two potential culprits were, you know, it turned out it's not actually the case. So we don't know. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's, that's good to know. It's just kind of putting some of this stuff to, to, to rest, right? Because we live in a world with social media and everybody has very differing opinions now. Once upon a time, we just listen to doctors, but you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, <laughs> now for we've... sure. And, and you know, their voices are very loud, right? So I, I don't know what these people do for a living or whatnot, but they seem like they have to post on, all day on some social media. <laughs> As a as a as an MD yourself, good old Doctor Google. Apparently, they think they know better. But anyways, it's it's good. It's just sort of good to know, and just to know vaccines. You know, they do save lives, and thank God we have Western medicine because otherwise, polio would still be, you know, yeah, paralyzing. Absolutely, and you know, um, one of the things that uh, I think people um, don't understand, and you know, we address this a little bit offline, is 
why does this, um, why do some vaccines need boosters and, you know, others don't? And why, why do some induce like better immunity than others? You know, for example, one of the yeah, comments that I get is, you know, why, how did you get COVID when you had three jabs of the COVID vaccine? And, uh, you know, it's the nature of the, this vaccine and we're still learning a lot about it. Um, but we know that, you know, some vaccines that are based on the dummy down live versions uh, induce a much stronger immunity than, mm -hmm. you know, the things that are inactivated or completely killed vaccines. So things like tetanus, for example, require, uh, you know, boosters, whereas MMR or measles, mumps, rubella, which are, you know, uh, dummy down versions of what we call the wild type or the real strain, uh, tend to induce a much stronger lasting immunity. Right. Yeah. The immune system or the immune response is a lot stronger. Well, it's like the flu vaccine. I mean, nobody can really keep up with that. You still get the flu, even if you get the flu vaccine or you can still contract the flu. So yeah. yeah it's a reduction in uh, morbidity, it's, mortality. Uh, sometimes it's not a complete elimination. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. What about um, something else I was, I was thinking about was like gene suppression. So say, um, you know, you discover that there's major genetic components. Obviously, we talked about this in previous episodes um, in regards to epigenetics and, and how much is um, how much of a genetic component there is to, you know, um, allergies and your the immune system and how it functions. But what if you were to be able to do you think that this would change how um, you treat allergies moving forward, especially prior to you know, so women, you know, pregnancy and like gene suppression and knowing if somebody has allergies or say asthma or, you know, like, and it's, there's more of a genetic component there that you'll be able to control this. So it's not passed along. Yeah, no, this is a really great question. And I'm definitely not a geneticist, but, you know, I, I know, um, uh, you know, a lot about this field as it pertains to my field. Um, some of these, um, you know, genetic regulation, like decreasing the dimmer switch, um, is easy to study and much easier to study than others. So, you know, one of the common ways our, you know, DNAs and gene, uh, genes get sort of dimmed on and off is something, a process called methylation, where you add, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a CH3 uh, group to your DNA promoter regions. So the enzyme goes through slower or less likely. Uh, but some of the other epigenetic changes like uh, histone uh, position and, and modification of where that gene sits relative to where it's wrapped around in your, in your body, that's really hard to study because, you know, when you, when you have to sequence these genomes, you got to basically get rid of the uh, histone that the DNA is wrapped in and to know mm -hmm. the exact position of where that gene is exposed. So the idea is if you have like, let's say, um, essentially like a ball, and you wrap this string around it, which is your DNA, and some parts of where that ball is exposed is much easier for the enzymes to access than others. Imagine studying mm -hmm. that at like such a teeny tiny microscopic level. It's, it's hard to study, right? And then right. you have the other issue of um, studying epigenetics in humans. So there's a lot of great work that's been done uh, in this field, especially as it pertains to allergies and asthma. But uh, imagine uh, trying to study humans to through, you know, even two or three generations. It's very difficult, right? Because you need you need mm -hmm. places in the world that have kept meticulous records, and in places around the world where nobody travels or leaves that little small community. So it's really really hard to uh, study this. So 
I don't know, like now that we are living in the age of information technology, I can see for my children, um, this information is going to become much more accessible and maybe we'll know how to apply it better. But like right now, like from what we know, we know certain things affect the epigenetics, but mm -hmm. all the epigenetic changes, you know, I haven't even gotten to some of the other modifications. Are, some of them are very hard to study in, in, in a lab. And, and certainly if you sign up for 23andMe, it, it doesn't tell you about your epigenetics really either, right? So, <laughs> Right. And, and so are all allergies, do they all have a genetic component or can it be strictly environmental or like, is, is, it, is it really both? Uh, I, it's really both. Uh, so you know, it requires like a predisposition and, um, and, and, you know, some kind of environmental interaction that revs things up um, because no, nobody is born with an allergy. Some people are born with eczema though, uh, quite literally. So they're very, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't want to use the term unfortunate, but they're, you know, have an, um, a mutation, for example, in a gene called uh, SPINK, which is determined some of the, um, uh, the proteolytic activity. And some people have something called filagrin, which determines like the mortar and glue in their skin. And, and they're born with, you know, um, defective versions of these genes. So, you know, they literally come out with really, really severe eczema from birth and, and onwards. And you can't really, you know, our, our gene editing um, therapy is not good enough to uh, cure a, a lot of these conditions. But, um, you know, I think one day, hopefully with uh, CRISPR technology or something else that's even more clever, we'll be able to uh, help these people. Yeah, well, like anything, I think if we can figure out a way to figure out the genetic component behind it or control that in some aspect, that is going to change the outlook of how people either suffer or don't suffer from illnesses in general. So, yeah, it's, it, it is yeah. It's a really cool area, right? Like, so when I was in training, and training at uh, you know a major pediatric uh, immunology center. I got to see, I can't mention the genetic disorder because it's so rare you would be able to identify the patient, but we actually did were, when they had a single nucleotide uh, defect, so it's just really one base pair, we were actually able to cure these patients with uh, gene therapy, which is super interesting. Um, and it was like, you know, a couple of the first times in the world that that, that had been done. But um, yeah, I think, as this technology gets better, a lot of things will be uh, much more modifiable. Uh, things like allergies with um, the epigenetics will be much harder because it's hard to, harder to control some of these epigenetic changes, right? It's, it would be really hard. You'd need some kind of nanotechnology that can deter, you know, manipulate yeah. DNA at some level. Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, I think I think that's probably. For all the questions, like, I think that's pretty much it. I think we covered like all the stuff, especially with where our world is like major issues like stress and mental health. And if this is a really exacerbating kind of issue for your immune system and then the secondary inflammation and then the allergies along with COVID and viruses and vaccines. And yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if I could tie it all in, uh, Rianne, it's, um, you know, in any situation of an allergic reaction or anaphylaxis, or an asthma exacerbation in any of these situations or permutations, um, you do see that stress amplifies everything. It's what we call a cofactor. It makes you more prone to anaphylaxis to food, for example. It also you know, results in poor sleep, which in itself is, a poor, is an exacerbator of everything in, uh, inflammatory. So whether it be asthma, uh, whether it be uh, you know, lowering the threshold of a food allergy, whether it be eczema. So when you're not rested, you're also 
you know, more likely to perceive itchiness. Itchiness always gets worse uh, in these settings of stress. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of, uh, you know, interconnectedness there. Mm -hmm. Oh, one more question. It just totally, see, this is I the beautiful. Know. Jason, is this that I think about something else? What about people who've recovered from cancer or in remission who have had radi or like, um, uh, radiation or, or, and or chemotherapy? Can they develop allergies and does this permanently affect the immune system? And I love this question. Um, and yes, it can. Absolutely. So, um, you know, my practice is literally right beside Princess Margaret Hospital, the, the biggest cancer hospital in Canada. Uh, so I see a lot of these uh, patients post-oncology or post-radiation. Uh, and, um, you know, when you take some of these chemotherapies or if you're, if you're radi uh, radiation therapy involved affecting your lymph nodes or immune glands, absolutely can affect a lot of things. So um, a lot of my patients, you know, develop new allergies, for example, including food allergies, or they develop, uh, you know, things that they never had before, like eczema uh, throughout their body. You know, sometimes it's hard to tell because eczema can really occur at any age um, mm -hmm. and uh, any circumstance. But you, know, you alluded and talked about uh, stress before being a potential uh, driver yeah. of this kind of inflammation. And, and certainly, you know, going through uh, cancer is, is very stressful, right? It's like life changing and, you know, you, uh, it, it's existential kind of uh, stress, right? So yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it can uh, do a lot of these things. Yeah. Well, we just know that those therapies are so invasive and they're so, you know, hard on the body in general. Right. So absolutely. I just... and, and they affect uh, you know, a lot of the um, chemotherapies, especially, you know, the bread and butter chemotherapies are still like the older, agents like you know we still use different variations of mustard gas for example for chemotherapy we use uh, cytoreductive agents that basically kill a lot of cells uh, these affect every cell and um, immune cells um, people don't know this um, so right now as we're sitting here Brianna our uh, immune cells are undergoing DNA change intentionally all the time so did you notice that they're going through DNA rearrangement so to come up with new combinations of things that can react to it. it literally happens as we're sitting here our our body's immune dna is actually mutating so imagine uh, a fast replicating cell like this being hit with like you know all sorts of chemotherapy agents that are designed to affect fast dividing cells and mutating cells so there you go it affects a lot of things very interesting well that poses more information for the future and how <laughs> it can affect, you know, as therapies change or as medicine changes. So, well, that's fascinating, Jason. I really enjoyed this. This has been pretty informative. Yeah, Very thank informative. you, Brian. And, and uh, we're going to be back with another whole other season on uh, a little bit uh, different topic in my field, but uh, yeah, we'll be uh, talking some more. Oh, that's excellent. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate all your time. Likewise.